our vision for young adults in 2022 is called the power of one. We want to pray for one person a day, engage one person a week, and invite one person a month. And that invite is much bigger than just inviting somebody to young adults on a Monday night or church on a Sunday morning. It's inviting somebody to take the next step in their walk with Jesus. But for our weekend, our theme is, thank you, Bobby. Our theme is the word engage. And we want to learn how to engage our culture on some topics that are just a challenge, um, that our culture has some big objections to Christianity. And we're going to start with a pretty difficult one this morning as Andrew is going to share on how we address the problem of evil. Um, somebody says, I don't want to be a Christian because there's evil in the world. We're going to learn how we can engage uh, biblically and intelligently in those conversations. So I hope you're awake because Andrew's going to fly through this. So let's give a nice warm winter conference welcome to Pastor Andrew. That was a little weak, but that's okay. No, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. We'll totally roll with it. Hey, everyone. It's fun to be here this morning. So we're going to be talking about the problem of evil. Some of you have heard me talk on this before. So if so, uh, I want you to be thinking of some questions. I want us all to review because really this is a topic we could hear many times before we would have it mastered. So I, I want to leave some time at the end for some Q&A. No promises because it's me and timing is not always my strong suit, but we'll see how much we can get through. Uh, but I do want this to be more of a conversation always than just a lecture. So if you have questions throughout, if there's something that doesn't make sense, if you want to push back on something, raise your hand and shout out. And I, have, I, I think that'd be a fun way to engage since we have a smaller group this morning. Uh, but as we dive into this topic right off the bat, let me ask you guys a question. So here is the question I want you to consider, and you guys can shout out some responses in a moment. If you were able to ask God one question right now, and you knew it would be answered, what question would you ask? What's the, what's the one question? You, you don't have to put too much thought into it, but what, what question would you ask? What do you think? I assisted some of my coworkers, and I got some funny responses. Linda, who's in our front office, had said, I'd ask God, because she has tons of grandkids, why babies have to go through the teething process and why it lasts so long. Having a teething child, and I've slept like four hours this entire week, I would like to ask God that question as well. When I moved to Wisconsin, I want to ask God, what was your original pre-sin design for the mosquito? Like what, what in the world was this animal before the fall happened? What, what questions would you ask God? What do you think? Oh, that's a good one. What's the, what's the area we got our theology the most wrong, right? I had a friend one time say, if we get to heaven and like 20% of our theology was right, he'd be happy, right? Because there's so much about God that we just can't even comprehend. What else do you think? Where did you come from? What's that? Where did you come from? Where did you come? Okay, yeah. Where did, yeah, just help us understand this idea of infinitude. How can you exist without a beginning or a cause? Boom. Absolutely. Yes? Disease and sickness. Okay, we're actually going to launch into that one a little bit today. Okay. Okay, so there are a lot of questions that we could ask. Some of them could be fun. Some of them could be theological. Whenever you, some of you know Dave Jones, anytime I always ask this question, all he wants to know is, who is Melchizedek in the Old Testament? He thinks that's super funny to ask. So too bad Dave's not here to make that joke today. But there's a variety of, a variety of questions that we could ask. Um, but by far, there is one question that is the most common. 
So Lee Strobel, many of you probably know who that is. He's an apologist. He writes kind of at a popular level. He's written The Case for Faith, Creator, and Christ. And when he was uh, doing research for The Case for uh, Christ, he had Barna Research Group uh, present this question to the culture and see what questions came back most often. And the number one question by far was this. Why do you allow suffering in your creation? Where are you in the midst of seemingly huge amounts of suffering and evil? That was by far the most common question people wanted an answer to. How can you exist and for evil and pain and suffering to exist in the world? Now, that is the objective question, but subjectively what that actually sounds like in most people's lives is this. Why did you allow my mom and dad to get divorced when I was young? That really messed up my childhood. Why did you allow me to have this genetic condition that's caused me pain or physical limitation or mockery or inconvenience? Why did you allow this loved one or friend or sibling die when I was young? That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem good. Or you might look around at some of the atrocities in the world like sex trafficking or genocide or terrorism or racism and disappointedly and angrily ask God, how do you not put an end to these things immediately? I don't understand why you allow all of this. Those are all questions that flow out of the general objective question, how can you allow so much evil and suffering in the universe? And as I was pondering, uh, as I was pondering this question, why do you allow suffering in your creation? My mind went back to an interview in 2015 with an English actor named Stephen Fry. Does anybody know who Stephen Fry is? Maybe, yeah, a couple people. So Stephen Fry is an actor, but he's also kind of like a a novice when it comes to philosophy and, and, um, and apologetics and those types of things. Now, he's an atheist. And one time he was asked the question, what question would you ask of God in an interview? And here was his reply. I would say bone cancer and children. What about that? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there's such misery that's not our fault, it's not right, it's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-spirited, stupid God who creates a world that's so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. So Stephen Fry there, he's really asking a question that's one of the biggest hurdles that we have to overcome as Christians and as people who believe in God. Why? Does God allow pain and evil and suffering in creation? Is that fair or is God being mean-spirited, capricious, and unworthy of our worship and belief? Can we overcome the obstacle of uh, the problem of pain? This is what pastor and apologist Tim Keller would call a defeater belief. So defeater belief is something that if a person is holding this defeater belief until that is explained, they're probably going to be obstinate to receiving the gospel. There is a kind of an intellectual wall around their heart. Until that is breached, it's very hard for them to see the Christian worldview as potentially uh, livable and potentially true. So how do we deconstruct the defeater belief of the problem of pain? And we have to be ready to respond to this because this will come up. I'm a total nerd when it comes to apologetics and worldview and all those things. So sometimes I enjoy watching debates between apologists, theologians, creationists, and atheists, right? So I know, super dorky. You guys have much better plans on Friday night than me. So I'm watching these debates, and every single time, you know what comes up? 
the problem of pain and evil. That's like the first weapon in the arsenal of the atheistic worldview. They will go here every time because it doesn't just have a logical edge to it. It also has an emotional and experiential edge that cuts right to people's hearts and they say, that just feels right. That critique feels accurate. I, I, I do struggle with that. I don't enjoy that. So this is the first weapon that atheists will go to, but also it's one of the first things you have to overcome because there are a lot of people who wrestle deeply with the problem of pain. It's not only about being a good ambassador for the gospel. We need to have that in our own spiritual lives because at some point, this question of the problem of pain will move from the theoretical to the actual in our lives. No one escapes the effects of pain and sin and brokenness in this world. At some point, for every single person, the problem of pain will go from being theoretical to actual in our lives. Whether it's parents who un unexpectedly get divorced or some sort of abuse, abuse that we're forced to go through or a friend who betrayed us or a mental health struggle that won't go away or a person we love suddenly dies and we walk through grief, pain permeates life in a fallen world. And we never know when the problem of pain is going to spring forward in our lives. I was thinking of this and just even in the last couple years, okay, so I actually, I just gave this talk at Districts a couple weeks ago. So Districts is a gathering of 3,000 uh, teenagers over in Green Bay for a huge conference like this, but with 3,000 people, a, a weekend conference. And I gave this presentation. I was just talking to some youth pastors afterwards at a network I was at on Thursday, and one of them came up to me and said, uh, I, some of my students came to your talk. I was really excited to know they went because one of the girls, her parents, just right before she came, found out that they were getting a divorce. She had someone really close to her die, and then like a third tragedy all hit within like a month, you know. And, and that reality, boom, you never know when that's, life is normal, things hit, right? And, and when it hits, we want to have an understanding of how we can reconcile this tension. We as Christ followers need to have a biblical theology of, of suffering, we need, to, we need to have a theology of suffering. And when I talk about theology of suffering, that means we have a category in our worldview that understands that pain and suffering are an expected part of living in a fallen world. That's not the exception, that's the norm. And it's not even the exception for Christ followers. Because right now, there are many people in our culture, especially America, who are very ill-prepared to deal with the problem of pain because they have bought into a watered-down version of what the biblical gospel is, okay? Because the biblical gospel is not a prosperity gospel, but the prosperity gospel is absolutely prevalent within our culture. And the prosperity gospel can take on many different facets, but essentially at its core, it, it kind of looks like this. There is a quid pro quo in my relationship with God. God, I'll have a relationship with you. I'll believe in Jesus. I'll check the boxes. I'll go to church. I'll pray. I'll try to be a moral good person. But the quid pro quo is as long as I do that, you diminish pain, suffering, and brokenness in my life, and you give me blessing. And that's my expectation, right? So if I'm doing all these things, I shouldn't be getting sick. I shouldn't have tragedy strike. I shouldn't be losing a job. And that's what it looks like. And though a lot of us would say, yeah, I don't believe in the prosperity gospel. Well, when 
pain hits in our life, we see whether or not we believe in it. If our first response is, God, I've been trying so hard in my spiritual life and this happens, guess what? Prosperity gospel's crept in a little bit. And that's hard to guard against because it's so prevalent in our culture and it's so easy to do in our hearts. But the reality is the prosperity gospel does not have a satisfactory answer for the problem of pain. It doesn't. The prosperity gospel does not have a satisfactory answer. And when pain strikes, people who hold the prosperity gospel, guess what happens to their faith? It crumbles because there's no foundation. They said, this wasn't the bargain I signed up for. You're not holding your end, up of the, uh, your end of the bargain up, God, so why should I follow you anymore? And, and their faith implodes. But Jesus tells us very clearly in John 16, he's talking about the pain and suffering that's going to happen to his apostles and him. And he says to his, which you should have studied this actually, I think in the upper room discourse this last semester in young adults. Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. But recognize in the world, you, you'll have trouble and suffering, but take courage, I've conquered I've conquered the world. Jesus says, hey, in the world, you will have pain and suffering. That is a reality until we enter into eternity. But in the midst of pain and suffering, if you abide in me, you can find peace that is uncircumstantial. So answering the objection uh, of the problem of pain is not just vital to our witness. It's also vital to our own spiritual lives. As we continue this morning, we're going to try to answer the problem of pain in two ways intellectually, and then also more emotionally and experientially. Intellectually, we're going to put on our apologetics hat and use the scalpel of an apologist to dissect the logic and expose the intellectual uh, problems of wrestling through the problem of pain. But then we're also going to move into the pastoral role where we're going to put on more of our counselor hat and say, okay, not intellectually, but experientially, how do we counsel someone who's walking through the midst of this uh, themselves? So that background in mind, we are going to dive into the problem of pain. So this is the easiest way to look at this because this literally has been around for 2,400 years. So there was, uh, the problem of pain is nothing new in case you were wondering. And it's not just a Christian problem. So let's rewind back to the 3rd and 4th century BC in ancient Greece. So in ancient Greece, they believed in a plethora of gods and a pantheon of gods. And there were certain philosophers who didn't like the concept of God. There's one in particular who really hated it. His name was Epicurus, okay? And Epicurus came up with the philosophical uh, system that would later be called Epicureanism. You don't need to know what that is, just giving you a little history, okay? But essentially, Epicurus said that the chief end in life is to have as much pleasure as possible, and the highest pleasure is an absence of pain and suffering and brokenness. And he said one of the greatest ways you can alleviate pain and brokenness in your life is to stop believing in God. He thought that theological religious belief brought unnecessary pain into people's lives. So he was avowedly atheistic. And he came up with an argument to say, this is why you're stupid for believing in God. It's called the Epicurious Trilemma. And it is still here today. You'll hear this all the time. If you saw, I think it was Batman versus Superman. If you ever saw that, Lex Luthor on the rooftop uses the Epicurious Trilemma when he's talking to students. Like, it's just part of our popular culture. It goes like this. If God is unable to prevent evil, then he's not all powerful, okay? So if evil exists in the world because God is unable to stop it, God's not all powerful. Or if God is not willing to prevent evil, then he's not really that good. So if God could prevent it, but he doesn't, he's not a good God. 
And then the conclusion is, if God is both willing and able to prevent evil, why does pain and suffering exist in the world? Okay? So in the realm of philosophy, this is a really big word. It's called a syllogism. Okay? You don't really need to know that. But a syllogism is basically, you're going to have statements, and then the conclusion necessarily follows if you prove the statements to be true. Does that make sense? You get that definition? Tracking with yes, no? Say it again? Okay. Your first, if you, you have two statements, okay, if you can prove your statements to be true, the conclusion underneath has to be true. It necessarily follows. That's what syllogism is, okay? So this is what they're trying to do. If God's unable to prevent evil, then he's not all-powerful. If God's not willing to prevail, he's not good. If he's both willing and able, why does evil exist in the world? The God of the Bible is no longer true. So basically, this is saying it's not logical to believe in a sovereign and good God while huge amounts of evil and suffering exist in the world. At this point, we probably need to define what we mean by evil. So evil in this sense would include both moral evil and natural evil. Okay, Moral evil is evil that is uh, committed by moral agents. So sex trafficking, racism, slavery, moral evil. Natural evil is what we're seeing outside here. That's evil, okay? It's evil, evil, evil. So, boo, yeah. It's evil, right? So natural evil would be the volcano that erupted this last week and caused a tsunami, right? It would be disease. It would be cancer. It would be all of the negative effects of a world that no longer is running as it ought to be. So that's evil is all included in that. Natural, moral, but it's all thrown together under the idea of evil. Okay. So as we respond, as I said, we're going to look at both the intellectual problem of evil and the emotional problem of evil. It's really important to do that because there are people who very much have an intellectual issue. They are philosophers. They are uh, maybe in university, and, and they, don't, they don't understand how to explain this away, and there's an intellectual objection. And we need to know how to respond to this intellectually because if I give them Romans 8, 28, and staple it on their forehead. God works all things together for the good, for those he loves and calls according to his purposes. And then I give an anecdote about how God used something bad in my life for good. They're going to say, so what? Right? That's not going to convince them. However, if someone's struggling with the emotional problem of evil, I say, well, I'm going to walk you through a syllogism that's going to show you the illogicalness of your belief. That, that's not going to be good either, right? That's not what I do in my counseling, okay? So that's, we got to figure out, do they need the scalpel of the apologist or the loving care of a counselor? And, and you need to know how to respond. So first, we're going to put on our apologetics hat, and we're going to look at the um, logical problem of evil. Okay, so when we looked at ep the logical problem of suffering, is essentially just Epicurious trilemma. So God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. Suffering exists, therefore God does not exist. That's what they would say. This, here's the problem of evil. God is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good. Suffering exists, therefore God does not exist. Now, here's the thing right off the bat. When we talk about the logical problem of evil, philosophers, naturalists, people who try to use this argument, they would say it's illogical to believe that if suffering exists, an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-good God exists, okay? But here's the thing. When we use the word illogical, we usually are not using that accurately. Illogical does not mean I don't get it, I don't understand it, I don't see the, that. That's not what the word logic means, okay? I know that's how we use it in our culture, but if you're in an academic setting, logic has a very specific meaning. And logic means, it, illogical means it defies a rule of logic, 
Okay? Does anybody know any of the rules of logic? Anybody? Yeah, maybe? The law of identity, the law of non-contradiction, and the law of excluded middle. Okay. Once again, you'll need to understand this. this let, me, let me give you an example of what something that'd be illogical. Uh, my eyes are blue. My eyes are brown. Okay? Can both of those statements be true in the same time in the same space? Yes or no? No. Why? Because the, both those statements are what? Contradictory. Contradictory. Good. So you just use the law of? To expose that what I just said is? There. A plus. Well done, everybody. So that's seriously how it works. Okay. So if you look up here, do any of these violate a law of logic? No. There's nothing logically contradictory there. Okay? So this is not illogical, which means there is a hidden assumption when people are using this argument. And the most common hidden assumption, the one that most atheists would use, is this. The hidden assumption, which would be a kind of a proposition thrown in there, God does not have a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering in his creation. Suffering exists, therefore God does not exist. That is the hidden assumption, and that is the only way it makes it illogical, okay? So that's really important. God does not have a morally sufficient reason to allow evil and suffering in the world. And we have to identify that hidden assumption because if we can prove the hidden assumption is not true, then the conclusion does not follow any longer. And we have defeated the argument. That's how philosophy works. That's how syllogisms are either proven or defeated. So all we have to do is attack the hidden assumption. So are there morally sufficient reasons for God to temporarily allow pain and suffering in his creation? That is what we're going to look at. Now, the uh, when you look at that in the realm of apologetics, that's a specific field called theodicies, okay? It kind of sounds like something that Tolkien would have written in Middle-earth, but theodicy is just a word that means to explain the justness of God in allowing evil. Theos is the first part of the word is God. Dikaie is righteous, so how God is righteous to uh, allow evil in the world. So we're, we're going to be looking at theodicies. You might want to write that word down because if this kind of stuff really interests you, you just need to look up theodicies and then you can study it in, in more depth. So I'm going to give you some of the most popular theodicies. And uh, I will tell you right up front that even the most ardent atheistic philosophers will admit that some of these theodicies disprove the logical problem of evil. So there's actually not a lot of philosophers who hold this anymore. They will say that Christians have aptly answered this. So they downgrade it to, it's just improbable that God exists. And we'll talk about that next. But so right off the front, just know that professional philosophers will admit that these solve the problem. Okay, so woohoo, Christians did good. Okay, here's the first one. The free will defense. That is popularized by a guy named Alvin Plantinga. You've probably never heard of him unless you like really boring books. And Alvin Plantinga is a Christian philosopher, and he has really developed the free will defense. And the free will defense goes a little bit like, do I have some words here? I do. Okay. The free will defense goes something like this. God desires a world with free moral agency, a universe with authentic moral choice by humans who are created in the very image of God, and it's qualitatively better than a universe of robotic determinism. I know there's a lot of big words there, but I'm going to break it down. God, when he created the world, he could have created a world where no one was created in his image. He had no image bearers. He just kind of 
built a perfect world. However, God wanted human beings to exist, and he wanted to make them unique. We are different qualitatively than the rest of the universe. Why are we different? Genesis tells us right after that. We are created in what? His image. Part of being an image bearer means that we are moral agents. We understand morality. We can make moral choices. Part of that is having a freedom to choose and having a free will, okay? That is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. So God wanted a universe where there were free moral agents who could choose to some degree the type of people they wanted to come, the future they were going to have, and to enter into a relationship with him voluntarily. He wanted that more than a world where everyone's just robots and there's no authentic choice. That universe is qualitatively better than a universe of robotic determinism. However, God knew pain and suffering were going to enter into the world. He knew that we were going to abuse that gift. We were going to choose to rebel against him, choose to have moral evil, and because of our moral evil, it produces natural evil. That's the consequence of that. God knew all of this was going to happen, which is why he preordained the process of redemption to save us out of that. However, he still allowed that to happen because a universe where we can have a real relationship with him, an authentic moral choice, is better than a universe without that. Okay, so let me explain this with an analogy to make it a lot more concrete in your minds. Every parent knows this to be true. Every parent knows this to be true. If you have a child, guess what? Did you know that your child was going to suffer at some point in their life? Yes or no? Yeah, right? Everyone suffers. So if you're a parent and you bring it like, I have a six-month-old, and he acts like he's gone through so much suffering. When I put a thermometer in his armpit to take his temperature when he's sick, he screams bloody murder, and you would think I was torturing the kid, right? So he's suffering. Like, as a parent, you know your child is going to be exposed to disease and pain and suffering. Why do you still have kids? Why do you still have kids? A universe with your children is qualitatively better with a, than a universe without your kids, even though they're going to suffer, even though there's going to be pain, you want the relationship, you want them to have the blessing of life, and the universe is going to be better with them rather than without them, even though there's going to be momentary pain. If you have kids, you can't argue against this. You, you, are, you are reflecting the same heart of God. Okay, so that's the free will defense. Boom. The Odyssey one. We're going to have to speed up, as always. Okay, so then, so then here's, the second, here's the second part. What time do I have till Sam? 55 to, oh man, okay. Did you get me up late? Okay. Here, so then some people are going to push back, okay? Some people are going to push back and say, well, that sounds great, but why couldn't have God created a universe where there are free moral agents, but he, could, he didn't allow evil to emerge, okay? So people will come back with that objection. And this moves into the theodicy that's called the best possible world's defense. And, and here's the first one. God could have created a stunning and perfect world without sin. However, it could not be a universe with free moral agency. And that's not a limit on God. Okay, so, well, why couldn't God create free moral agents but had a world where sin could never enter? Okay, why couldn't God do that? That's not a limit on God saying God couldn't do that. Because think about it this way. When we say God can't lie, is that a limit on God's power? No, Right? God can't do things that are contradictory to his nature. That's not a limit on his power. God just doesn't do things that are contradictory to his nature. 
Our morals are not arbitrary. God didn't randomly pick, uh, lying's going to be bad, telling the truth is good. It flows from his character. Logic flows from God's character. It's not a created thing. God is a logical being, okay? It's not a limit on God's power. It just means God can't do illogical things. God can't make square circles. God can't make a rock so big they can't lift it. That's not a limit on God. God just doesn't do illogical things. God cannot make free moral agents while also simultaneously preventing evil from entering. Those are contradictory statements, okay? So that just kind of self-defeats. That's not a logical response. But then some people push back and say, well, why does God allow evil to continue? Why can't God just immediately judge evil? So why doesn't God just immediately judge evil when it takes place? That would be a better world than the one we live in. But would it be? Sounds kind of good on paper. God immediately judges evil, but is that a world that you want to live in? Yes or no? We'd all be dead, right? That's not a world you want, because it's great when it's other people's evil. Why doesn't God immediately strike down this evil dictator dead? Okay, that, that's a good question, but at the same time, why doesn't God strike me down dead when I'm committing horrible acts of evil, and we all do, right? We all have evil in our hearts. No one wants to live in this world and realize how immature it is to say, God, you should show me grace and mercy, but nobody else because I'm not as bad as they are. That, that doesn't work, right? For God to be merciful and gracious, it's kind of a, an overarching theme. And there are times where God immediately punishes evil. We see that in scripture. There are times where he does that, but that's the exception, not the norm. And that's a reminder that, hey, God will punish evil one day. It's just not right now. And the reason God doesn't immediately punish evil, according to Peter, 2 Peter, is because he wants all people to come to repentance. He wants everyone to be freed from the brokenness of sin and pain in this world. Every single person, no matter the evil they've committed. He doesn't want anybody to be punished. He wants all people to come to repentance. Well, then there's a third objection. Well, why couldn't God have just originally chose not to punish moral evil? So Adam and Eve sinned. They made a moral choice. Why did God have to punish them with death and allow uh, natural evil to enter into the world? Why all the natural evil? Well, the reason natural evil entered in the world, this sounds kind of crazy, but it was actually a gracious act of God. Because God could have encased our universe in its broken condition, withdrew his presence, and said, no sickness, no death, you guys go. But guess what? That's a world without redemption. No redemption. Which means you would live in eternity with your brokenness and your sin just growing harder and harder and harder. There'd be nothing to curtail evil. Realize how much natural suffering sometimes curtails evil. Do you know what, what one of the biggest uh, factors in Hitler losing World War II was? Cold Russian winters. Cold Russian winters. He invaded Russia, and he would have taken over all the way and probably had victory unless, guess what happened? <laughs> that junk. And he lo- so there are times where natural evil con- contains and restricts moral evil. Even our death constrains how evil we might become. Okay, so, so a world where there's no judgment sounds good on face, but realize that's a world where there's never hope of redemption. There's no goodness. There's no access to God's presence and evil is just going to harden and harden. So my question is, do any of those things sound like a better solution than the solution God came up through the gospel and through redemption? I'd say no, right? I would say no. There's no alternative world that would be better. And then that brings us to a third theodicy, a couple more to round this out. The pain is God's megaphone defense. So this is C.S. Lewis, right? And essentially it goes like this. God 
So God allowed evil temporarily, and we see why he did that from our, final, our last two theoses. But even though God allowed evil, he also found ways to turn evil for momentary good. So he, doesn't even, he, he is so sovereign that he can even use evil devices for our good in the time being. And to paint his God megaphone's defense is C.S. Lewis' analogy that kind of sounds like this. Is a knife intrinsically bad or good? A knife. Just a knife sitting here. Is intrinsically evil or good? Neither, right? It depends how the moral agent wields it, okay? So if you are walking through Marathon Park and a creep in a ski mask jumps out and puts a knife to your throat, the knife is used for evil purposes. That's not a good knife, right? However, if you are having your appendix rupture and you're wheeled into a spirus and Dr. Brown meets you and says, oh, we're going to take out that appendix and he's got his scalpel there, right? That is... A good, a good knife, right? Same thing, it's, but one can be used for evil, one can be used for good. God never uses suffering for evil. He uses it in the lives of believers for good. Now, we always know how that works out, right? But that's, that is one of the ways that God can use evil and suffering even for good ends. And we see that in scripture. I think of the time where there's a blind beggar who's been blind for since birth for 20, 30 years, and the disciples walk by and they say, Jesus, did this guy sin or his parents that he's blind, right? And what does Jesus respond? Neither. He's blind so that the glory, of, the glory of God might be revealed. He heals the man, and the man has a saving relationship with Jesus through faith from that point on. Even though the man was blind, that blindness brought him into a saving encounter with Jesus, and his eternity was changed. Now, I don't think the guy was like, woohoo, blindness for 30 years. However, looking back in eternity, I think he's going to say, even though I suffered, that suffering was okay because it brought me to Jesus. Okay, so that's the pain is God's megaphone defense. And then there's one last one just called the higher order good, uh, greater good defense. And that idea is kind of like this. There are certain higher order goods that necessitate evil and suffering in the world. They can't exist apart from evil and suffering. So evil and suffering, it's not an excuse for them, but it shows one of the reasons God might allow them. They allow us to do things we otherwise couldn't. We can show generosity to those in need. We can protect the vulnerable. We can have love and we can choose to forgive those who have wronged us. All these things that develop character and graciousness and, and the fruit of the spirit in our lives, evil allows those to be developed. But not only that, there's also the idea that our temporary suffering is going to elevate our enjoyment of the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of God. It's going to remind us to not take those things for granted. Think about it this way. Uh, a year and a half ago, year ago, year ago, I got COVID for the first time. And my taste, uh, my sense of taste and smell were gone. And my taste didn't come back for like three months. Three months where coffee tasted nasty. And I love coffee, right? Once my taste came back, guess what I appreciated way more than I used to? My sense of taste and smell. Well, coffee, coffee yes, but <laughs> my sense of taste and smell, right? I took those for granted until I recognized how valuable they were. The higher order good reminds us that we understand how beautiful and wonderful God's perfection, holiness, and graciousness is because once all that sin is dealt with and taken care of, we have a deeper enjoyment of knowing what we've been delivered from. Okay, Once again, not saying that that is always convincing, but when you add all of those together, most people would say the logical problem of evil fails. So then people just kind of object and, and soften, soften it a little bit, and then they talk about, well, fine, it's not that God can't exist, but then they just change it to 
God probably doesn't exist. Okay, so they just downgrade it. So in that case, if evil, all these things, yeah, it doesn't, but given the totality of evidence, maybe it's improbable for God to exist. Now I'll just fly through these, but I don't think the probability argument holds up either because there are, there are other things. So first, the problem of evil is actually greater for the atheistic worldview. So I don't have time to develop this, but if you don't believe in God, you don't have a category for moral evil or natural evil. There's no such thing. And if you truly believe in a naturalistic, macroevolution, Darwinian, survival of the fittest universe, there's no such thing as evil. And, and actually, scientists who hold that and are honest, they'll tell you that. There's no such thing as good or evil. There's just genetic dispositions playing out. So genocide, it's not evil. It's survival of the fittest. Um, when a hurricane goes through, that's just how the universe works. It's not evil. So the problem is, if you want to ascribe evil to those things, recognize if you don't believe in God, you, you can't call it evil. So the, the problem of evil, yeah, it's a problem for Christ followers. It's a bigger problem for naturalists because now you have to explain why we have this natural innate desire to label things as evil when there's no such thing as evil in the world. Okay, does that make sense, Capiche? You catching? Okay. Two, the argument from improbability has an unrealistically high view of the human intellect. Okay, so it, it's kind of like this. I can't see the reason, therefore it must not exist. But if we are humans who are, I mean, we are designed uniquely, but our intellect pales in comparison to who God is. How can we expect to understand everything God understands? That is a naively unrealistic view of our intellect. It's kind of like this. You know what? I can't see a virus, therefore it doesn't exist, and I don't have to think about it. You can live that way, but it's not going to work. Like, it's there whether you can see it or not. If you had the right equipment, if you had a microscope, you could see it. If you had God's perspective, you could see all this, but we're not God. So we need to be a little more humble in our assessment. Third, the theodicies from the last one carry right over, and they help dismantle it. Fourth, relative to the full scope of evidence, God's existence may well be probable. So when we look at all of the evidence for God's existence and weigh them out, the problem of evil doesn't overcome the, the push of evidence, right? So William Lane Craig uses this analogy. He says, all you have is this information. There's a man who weighs 360 pounds, okay? And the question is, is, is he a world-class athlete? Would you say that's probable or improbable? Probably improbable, right? That's, that's not typically the build you would see for a world-class athlete, but then you hear he's Japanese and he's a sumo wrestler and he has multiple championships. Now, what would you say? Okay, it's a lot more. Why? You have way more information. When we look at all the rest of the evidence of the origin of the universe, the weaknesses of macro, all, all those other things I could get into another time, it becomes far more probable. And then, and then lastly, there are Christian doctrines that increase the likelihood of God allowing evil and suffering in his created universe for a, a, a moment. And the, the biggest one is the chief purpose of our life is not happiness, but to know God, okay? The, that's, a, that's a huge facet of the Christian worldview. The chief purpose of our life is not happiness, but to know God more deeply. And God can use pain and suffering temporarily to draw us deeper to him. I imagine most of us could look back and see a time where there was pain and suffering in our life and it drew us deeper to God, right? There are things that God might temporarily allow to get a better understanding of who he is. Um, and then God's divine purposes are not restricted to this life. They'll spill over into eternity. Yes, God allows suffering temporarily, but he will not allow it to continue on indefinitely. Evil has an expiration date, 
However, when evil expires, there's no second chances for repentance and forgiveness, which is why God delays his ultimate justice. So I would argue the probability argument fails. And now with the time I've left, I will quickly dive into the emotional problem of suffering. This always happens. I never have enough time to develop this. I'm sorry. Um, So when we encounter the emotional problem of evil, don't go through this with people, okay? that's, That's the intellectual. When we encounter the emotional problem of evil, we have to respond in a very different way. We have to respond as a counselor or a pastor or put on our friend hat, right? So when people come to you and they are going through deep darkness and trials and pain has impacted their life greatly, the best way we can respond in the moment is just our presence, our tears, our silence, and our love. Honestly, that's the best thing we can do. Our presence, our tears, our silence, and our love. Uh, One of the things we have to remember, grief is not ungodly. Okay? Grief is not something to fight or repress. God created us to grieve. In fact, Scripture tells us God grieves, right? Jesus grieved when Lazarus died. God grieved when he saw evil take place. Grief is not something that is evil to be repressed in our life. It's a process we need to rightly work through. So don't guilt people for grieving, okay? That's the worst thing that we can do. And don't try to cheer everyone up immediately. Sometimes they don't need cheered up, they need to work through grief, right? So grief, God gives us permission to grieve and permission to articulate when things are hard. The best place to go for a grieving person is the book of Psalms, specifically the Lament Psalms. And the Lament Psalms, remember, these are Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures through different authors. Many of them are David. And Lament Psalms look like this. God, life sucks. It's hard. It's broken. People hurt me. This loss happened. I don't understand. Where are you? Where are you? I'm hurting. I'm broken. Help me. But I choose to trust in you even in the midst of my pain. And the beauty of Lament Psalms is God has divinely inspired those passages. And he's saying, hey, I give you permission to talk to me and to be real with me. I can handle it. You don't have to come up and say, I, I have to hide my emotions. I have to box them up when I approach the presence of God. We can come and say, God, this hurts. This is messy. I know you have a purpose. I don't understand it. I don't like it. Help me process through this because I can't do it alone. We have permission to do that, and that is okay to do. Never tell someone that they can't be vulnerable and open with God when they're struggling. Uh, that's okay. Also, when people are going through the emotional problem of pain, it's not a time for bad theology, okay? So I'm reading through the Bible this year in chronological order, okay? So it kind of jumps around from different books. And recently, we just finished the book of Job in this plan. If you've read the book of Job, you know that Job's friends do a really good job the first few days. They show up, they sit down, they shut their mouths, and they cry and wail and and, and lament with Job for all of the things, because Job lost everything, Everything is life. But then they decide to open their mouths, okay? And that was a big problem. And when they open their mouths, they, decide, they decided they're going to help Job get to the bottom of this. And they said, well, you know, they had some prosperity gospel going back to the beginning. If all this bad stuff happened, it's probably because your kids were sinners, you're a sinner, and there's unconfessed sin in your life, and God is smiting you down. So, Job, if you just fess up, tell us what you did wrong, maybe God will get back to blessing you. So come on, what's the hidden sin, right? And there's like 40 40 chapters of this, of them going back and forth. And Job just gets more and more mad, where he's like, no, I did not. And they're like, yes, you did, you sinner. And they just go back and back and forth. It's really bad. Until this new guy comes in, Elihu, and he says, y'all are wrong and stupid, shut up, right? 
And then God at the end comes in and he reprimands Job's friends. He said he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. That's not how this is working. That's not why I, I, I permitted evil and suffering to temporarily enter Job's life. So it's not time for bad theology. So we have to have a biblical theology of suffering and pain. So first, we have to always remember that God, and realize, solving the emotional problem of pain, none of this is going to make it be like, boom, it's solved, I'll never struggle. Okay, that, that's not going to happen. But it helps us have perspective of what the answer can't be. Okay, so first, we have to remember that God is not immune to pain and suffering. He is sympathetic to our pain and suffering because he has endured unfathomable pain due to evil in the universe. When God allowed evil to enter into the universe, when he knew that was going to happen, who did he know would suffer most? Seriously, who would he know that suffered most? Himself, right? Because with that came the plan of redemption, came the plan of Jesus dying, of God himself taking on human flesh, God himself bearing our sins, God going through shame, God going through the... The person who would suffer the most was God himself, so when we say, God, how could you allow pain and suffering? God says, well, you know, I suffered a lot too. And I did it so you could be free, right? So when we think of it, sometimes we think of pain and suffering like God is the, 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 the game maker in Hunger Games where we're stuck down in this bubble fighting it out and God's up there laughing at us. But that's not how it is. God entered into the pain and suffering himself and he suffered more than anybody else. By choosing to create free moral agents, God suffered the most which reminds us that even though we don't understand it, we recognize God gets it, okay? And that's the second thing. The gospel is the ultimate answer to the pain and suffering because Jesus experienced the greatest depth of pain imaginable, which is why when we go to Jesus, he's not indifferent. He's not calloused. He understands and he's ready to, he says, literally, that's why I died because I want you to be free from this. Tim Keller in The Reason of God, I love this quote. You've heard me say it, but I'm gonna say it again. If we ask the question, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue? But then we look at the cross of Jesus. You know what? We still don't know the answer. However, we now know what the answer can't be. It can't be that he doesn't love us. It can't be that he is indifferent or detached from our condition. God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he takes it on himself. And then third, as we're working through a biblical theology of suffering and pain, we have to remember God's ultimate purpose is for us to know him more deeply and profoundly. And he can use pain temporarily to help us in that pursuit. God never wastes our pain. He's sovereign over our pain. He can use it in ways that we can't see or imagine. And though we don't like that, though we might not always get it, though we won't see it till the other side of eternity, we do have the promise that God can use pain for our good even when we don't see it. I think of the life of, yeah, there, there are many Christians, missionaries, pastors I could give examples of, I don't time, but they never saw the fruit of the pain. But the fruit came afterwards, and it was huge, right? So God doesn't waste our pain. Fourth, suffering, pain, and evil can prepare us for future ministry. In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about, looking back, I'm grateful for pain and suffering because it enabled me to be a better minister of the gospel. So sometimes we look back, and there have been things in my life that I went through that I wouldn't have chosen, but now I have teenagers going through the same thing. And guess what it enables me to do? To be the hands and feet of Jesus in their life and to love them and to help them better understand I was where you are and here's how God met me. And then lastly, we have to put pain and suffering and evil in the right perspective. Though they suck, though they hard, we never minimize it. They're temporary realities. We have to try to see things through eternity. And what's the first thing we see about the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21? What's the first thing Jesus does? He wipes away every tear. 
There's no more death, no more pain, no more sin, no more sorrow. First thing, he abolishes the problem of pain. It's gone, it's dealt with, boom, it's erased. So yes, it sucks, not fun. We don't like it. However, it has an expiration date. And God says, keep your eyes on the future prize. Okay, that's all we got time for. I have no time for questions. I'm sorry, but there you go. It was a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me share with you guys. I'll stick around and maybe you can ask a question if you have a question.